I'm not teaching on Noah now anymore, so maybe it'll stop raining. <laughs> it says uh, the popular um, band Mumford and Sons, um, headed by Marcus Mumford, <clears throat> has a popular album called Babel. And a song um, in it is called Babel. It reads this. Like the city that nurtured my greed and my pride, I stretched my arms into the sky. I cry, Babel, Babel, look at me now. Then the walls of my town, they come crumbling down. Sort of like cryptic words. Um, there was a blogger, that's kind of the popular thing nowadays, who comments on this song. And he says, any Sunday school student should remember the Tower of Babel. <clears throat> I don't know why they call it Babel. Maybe it's an English thing. Um, <laughs> but um, any Sunday school student should remember the Tower of Babel was built by men trying to find God in the wrong way. God wrecked our tower and confused our tongues for our own good. As was always the case, as, as is always the case with good folk music, the lyrics throughout Babel are cryptic enough to apply to a variety of human experiences and specific enough to provide purpose. But what sets Mumford's music apart from others is they recognize that Babel is our collective hometown, and they seem determined to sing, strum, and stomp until it crumbles once again. I thought that was a really great comment on, on this song. About two years ago, <clears throat> I started to feel um, like my inner life was crumbling down caving in on itself. Uh, I'd reached a climax of personal fear and anxiety and insecurity. And you folks are bright, so you know a couple years ago I would have been your pastor. <laughs> um, so do the math there. Um, I've always been somewhat, somewhat open about my inner life and kind of what's going on in my life, so perhaps that's not a surprise to some of you. Maybe the extent of where I was internally might be a surprise to you. But these were my in inner tensions a couple of years ago. I'm not even trying to say, by the way, that I'm completely out of the woods. I'm still a human, and you know, like I still have to deal with my own emotions and whatnot. Um, but it was very severe in a way that was very unique to me. I, I, I always kind of describe myself as um, somewhat of a, a sheepish sort of soul. You know, I've, I've always been, I've always tended towards the fear end of the spectrum and not so much the I can do anything sort of end of the spectrum, like maybe some people um, in the world go towards that end, but that's not been me. Um, but, but a couple of years ago, it, it was a unique kind of height for me that I had never experienced before to that degree. So I started meeting with just various counselors and people that I, I just was seeking help to just kind of create some peace in my heart, some equilibrium again. Um, so I started doing that, and <clears throat> one day I decided I was just at a real end of my rope. I was about to fly to California or wherever the plane took me. It didn't really matter. Um, and I was like, I, I know I can't do that. I have kids, you know, so I can't just leave. That would be a bad decision. Um, <laughs> um, but one, So one day I decided, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. It, it feels internally like I'm just going to take off, you know, like, or, or, or who knows. So I decided to meet with an old teacher of mine that I had in high school, and uh, who's currently a pastor now, and he's kind of nearby. And I was suggested by a friend, I was just kind of pouring my heart out to a friend one day, and he was like, you know, you should meet with this guy, he's really wise. So I was like, okay. 
I don't know if you've ever felt like this before. When you've, when you've tried a million things and nothing works, it's, you almost get sick of trying something else. You know, like, um, but I did. I started meeting with him week after week um, for about an hour. Every single week I met with him, every Tuesday. And I met and sat down with um, what I've come to appreciate as a very wise and very godly man. And after a few months of meeting with him, this is what I said to him. I said, in more or less words, I tried to remember my exact words, um, but I couldn't remember my exact words. But I basically said something like this to him. I said, sir, I want to be great. (laughs) I know that's wrong. You ever get honest with someone, like, you know, like the deep, dark stuff that you know is wrong that you shouldn't ever say out loud, but, and then you say it because you have to? That's what was happening. I was like, I want to be great. And I know that's wrong, but I want to be great. I want to be more than great. I don't want to fail. I want to be admired. I want to be applauded. I want to be sought after. I want to be loved. I want to be adored. I don't want a simple life. I don't want an ordinary life. I don't want to drive a garbage truck or just do simple things that go unnoticed. I want to be noticed. I want to be, I want to be in a word, glorious. That's your pastor. (laughs) I'm sorry that you don't have a better church than this one. (laughs) And I was really shocked by, by his reply to me. By the way, I think a lot of a lot of what I said to him that day had a lot to do with just my inner feelings of turmoil and distress and depression. Um, but I was really shocked by his reply to me. Now, if you know this guy, some of you might even know who I'm talking about, but if you, if you know him, you'd know why um, he'd be, you'd be shocked by what he said to me. Because this man has more of a discipline and a commitment to God's word and godly living than anyone I know. No word of a lie, he gets up every, sing, every single day at 2 o'clock in the morning and prays for an hour or two and then goes back to sleep. Because it says in Psalms that I'll speak to God in the night out, in the, on, on the watchman's hour. He takes that literally, and every single day he wakes up and prays for an hour or two in the middle of the night. So this guy's, this guy's the real deal, right? You're, you're already thinking, where's his church? You know, like... I w- <laughs> um, so, and he's the one I'm confessing this to. You know, I'm not confessing this to someone who doesn't believe scripture and, you know what I mean, like, knows that there's something wrong with what I'm saying. You know, like, this is the one I'm confess- confessing this to. And I was really shocked by his response because he basically said to me, looks me in the eye, and he says, good. <laughs> now, a- anyone who's not a Christian probably wouldn't say that. Good? You want to be great? I mean, there's something wrong with you, dude. You know, like, he basically says, good. He says, good. I, be reminded of what I just, you know, bellied out to him. I, I want to be glorious. I want to be recognized, affirmed, applauded, loved. And he says to me, good. <laughs> he says, good, Kyle. But did you know that you were created to get that from God? You see, God created me. All those things I want are in me. You see, a lot of the things in us have two sides. It's like the, the angel and the devil, right? And we can seek after them through the applause of man or through great and glorious accomplishments, or we can get them from our creator. And who we choose to get them from oftentimes determines the inner peace and quality of life that we experience from day to day.
<clears throat> so he says good because God created you for that. He created for you for glory, for greatness, and for significance. But who pronounces that on you? Who casts the verdict? Who tells you that it's true? <clears throat> and I think if we're all honest, you know, you can laugh at me and say, how dare you, Kyle, feel like that. If we're all honest, come on, you feel like that too, to a degree. We all seek glory to some extent. And maybe we just seek it from one person. Maybe it's a man. Maybe it's a woman. Maybe it's a mom or a dad. We just, we, we're, we're going after it from somebody to prove ourselves, to prove that we're worth something. Right? We go after it. <clears throat> so we all seek that glory to some extent. And I had been aiming all my life to affirm myself with a tower called Babel. And we all have those towers. We all erect them because we're desperate to reach heaven. We just don't know how to get there. See, we're after heaven. That's what glory is. We're desperate to get there, but we just don't know how. So we build towers. We erect our own Babels. We hunger for what we all desire, and that's the glory of God himself. But their goal in Genesis chapter 11 was futile, and so is mine. I want to look at this city, because this city is, in, in, a, in essence, what we all do. We all do this very same thing. We're all building our own Babel, so they are too. Let's look at it. Let's learn from it. I want to look at the, their move, their motive, and the miracle that happens. The move, the motive, and the miracle. Before we get into that, I want to um, describe a little bit about who these people are, these sort of traveling nomads, if you kind of recall um, the text that we read. These are the sons of Noah. This is the context in Genesis chapter 11. These are the sons of Noah, the family, the progeny of Noah, the offspring of Noah. The story immediately follows what most of us probably know, even if you don't know anything about the Bible or religion, um, the Noah's Ark, right, and the great flood. So this story immediately follows that story in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. God sends a flood to purge the world, saves Noah and his sons, and when the flood receives, God tells them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Same command that he gave Adam and Eve um, in the Pre, uh, the antediluvian world, they call it, the, the pre-flood world. In Genesis chapter 10, we get a preview. That was where we were last week. In Genesis chapter 10, we get a preview of where their family ended up over the centuries, populating northeastern Africa, Arabia, eastern Europe, and more. Okay? That's where the families all went, and that's what chapter 10 is about. Chapter 11 sort of rewinds it a little bit, takes a step back, and says, okay, what did they do first, though? Before they went into all the world, what was their first move? And that's what Genesis 11 is all about. It's like almost Genesis 10 is 30,000 feet above, and Genesis 11 takes us down to the trees. And now we start examining one of them. Does that make sense? So here we are um, on ground level now, looking at the first early move of Noah's son's as they start to be obedient to God's word and to spread into all the earth, they start moving, okay? These travelers, we're told, were one in community. 
and one in language. They were intelligent, they were organized, and they were technologically advanced. They were building cities and ziggurats, as we'll see in a second, which are like pyramids. So these people are highly intelligent, um, incredibly organized, socially stable. Um, they share a common language. And the, these are the first sons of Noah, the family of Noah, the offspring of Noah, that come out um, after the flood. And here we can observe first their move, number one, the move. In their moving, they do three things in their moving. They do three things. They travel, they settle, and they build. Okay? Let's look at those. So in their move, they travel, they settle, and they build. So let's look at their traveling. Scripture tells us that they move eastward and found a place in Shinar. Shinar refers to most of Mes um, Mes ancient Mesopotamia, basically our Middle East today, Iraq, Iran, um, Palestine, all these different places. So scripture tells us that they start moving east into Mesopotamia to a land called Shinar, ancient Babylonia. Okay, That's where they head. What's important here is not so much where they are in a map. Okay, so a lot of times, I'm, I can be kind of a map guy. I, I don't know why. I just like looking at maps sometimes and figuring out where things were. I, I also kind of enjoy like seeing, you know, what was the country a thousand years ago that was the, you know, like what was Iraq and Iran and all this a thousand years ago. Those things interest me. But what's more important here is not so much where they are in a map, but the theological significance of their move. Okay? The Bible says that they move east to Shinar. Now that is metaphorical. That is giving us a sort of theological lesson, a devotional, so to speak. And let me explain to you what I mean. Genesis chapter 3, so we reverse a little bit. We go back in the Bible. This is after Adam and Eve had sinned and God expels them from his presence, which was Eden. He says, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. So, in Eden, the Garden of Eden is God's presence. The entrance to Eden is on the east of the garden. So to move towards God is to move west. To move away from God is to move east. You see? In Ezekiel, if you think I'm crazy, okay, good, get in line. In Ezekiel, <laughs> the entrance of the temple, by the way, is also on the east. Chapter 47, and Ezekiel says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing forth from below the threshold, the entrance of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. So the entrance to the temple was also on the east. Now, if you're a little bit maybe unaware of what the temple is, in the Old Testament, the temple is basically like a house. And that house is where God was. It was God's presence. So if you wanted to be in the presence of God, ancient Israel would go into the temple, which entrance was on the east, which means they're traveling west to him. You see this? The Garden of Eden is the same thing. God's presence is, is there, and um, to reach him, you must move east. So there's an imagery here that we need to pay attention to. In Scripture, in, um, in scripture, Eden and the temple represent the presence of God, God's 
blessing, God's love, being in him, being delighted by him, approved by him, applauded by him, in his presence, the greater father, the greater king, the greater love, the greater husband, the greater, the, the greater bride, right? That's what God is to us. To move, west, to move east is to move away from that. It's to be outside of it. Does that make sense? So this is where they're moving. They're moving east, and that's significant in this text. God has come down to dwell with us. That's what scripture says. In, in different places in the Old Testament, we see these places being um, scattered. Sometimes it's in the temple in Eden. There's all sorts of places where God comes down on Mount Sinai to meet, to meet Moses. God always comes down to meet with us. But what are these characters doing? They're going up. God is, so they're taking the initiative. They're saying we are going to find God. God is not going to find us. So in Eden and in, in the temple... Though, when God comes down, it's sort of like the place where heaven and earth meets. That's what this is saying. So to travel east is to travel away from God. What's hidden under this this magnificent poetry is that mankind, now please hear this, friends. Mankind, in our moving, in our building, in our creating, in our inventing, in our learning, And in our loving, we're doing this away from God, outside of him, and therefore empty. And we could even say that we're doing this to be free of him to begin with. To do this outside of the boundaries that he set for us. So they move. And the second thing that they do is they settle. Now this is very interesting. They move. And then they settle. And theologically, we see the opposite happening of what God had initially commanded them to do. To go, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to go to the ends of the earth, right? But they say, no, we are going to move, but we're going to settle. We're going to put down roots. Rather than scattering and filling, they settle and they stay. They sort of marry their own will and submit to its pleasure. See? They didn't simply travel east away from God. They decided to shackle themselves to a life outside of his blessing. Their disobedience puts down roots, foundation stones. See? It's an intentional and determined move of a people outside of God's blessing and presence. And isn't it remarkable how easy it is for us to do the same? To act and to think as if God really isn't true. He's not really there. Hath God said? It can't be. We sit down in our disobedience. We seldom wrestle with it. And then we make our own law. Right? Like, uh, if you guys have, you know, parents in your 50s or 60s, you know that they have their own Ten ten Commandments. Right? Like, Dad has his Ten Commandments. Don't be late for stuff. Commandment number one, right? Never be late. Um, commandment number two, can you think of another one? You know, don't accept handouts, right? Work for your, work, you know, you work for what you get. Don't take anything from the government. Right? That we, we have this kind of their own Ten Commandments. 
So we do that. We, we kind of laugh at that, but we do that. We all do that. We have our list of virtues that we decide. And when, when God says, don't go here or don't go there, come to me, we don't believe him. We travel out anyway, and we put down roots. And we say, hath God said anything at all? Francis Schaeffer was a, a teacher, some, some call a prophet and a philosopher, um, certainly a philosopher in uh, about the 1950s. Um, in the 20th century. And he said something really profound that I never forgot. He says, if there are no absolutes by which to judge society, society is absolute. You hear that? If there are no absolutes by which to judge society, society is absolute. In other words, if there isn't some kind of law above us that we need to submit to, out of, out of the nature of, the, of that law being above us. In other words, it's not something that we create. It's something that is an absolute, right? If that's not true, then society is absolute. We have to decide what's right and wrong. And we live by that code. And that changes like the wind, depending on the generation. I mean, you just talk to any, even living generations today, what they think the difference between right and wrong is, and you're going to get a vastly different um, answer from all of those people. And, you know, I know sometimes we kind of delight in looking at, like, the greatest generation as, as kind of like the, holder, the holders of all virtue. But, friends, you know they had some pretty bad social sense, pretty wicked ways of thinking. So while they had some things right, they, they weren't above the law. They were under it, as are we. You see, if there are no absolutes by which to judge society, society is absolute. If there's nothing over us that we need to submit to, then we only need to submit to ourselves. It's interesting and ironic how often I think our values and worldview today, and this is kind of the way that we think in our modern world, but our, how our values and our worldview mirrors those of the Dark Ages. We kind of, in our modern minds, we scoff at the Dark Ages, oh, those ignorant fools. Um, but we, we behave the exact same way. In the Dark Ages, did you know that kings were above or outside the law? Kings made the law. They were not under the law. They made it. They decided, this is the law. And if they're deciding, it's very easy to just say, well, I decide different now. <laughs> right? They're not under the law. Only the subjects are under the law. And, you know, the, the, they call this the divine right of kings in the Middle Ages. The law comes from the king to which he himself is not subject. There was no law governing him. Isn't that interesting? And friends, isn't that our modern world? Except that society, the majority, has taken the place of the king. See, we have no kings anymore because that's archaic and regressive. Except now we, we operate under the same principle but under the guise of a society. The society is not under the law but creates a law. <clears throat> The only law over us is the one we create. And here is where we find ourselves east of Eden. Here's where we settle down. We, we sort of say, hath God said, no, mm -mm. forget that, let's settle down. Now friends, you might not deny God's existence. You might be a Christian here this morning. So you might not deny God's existence or his law. You would acknowledge, yeah, there I get that there's a God and that I'm subject to him and that I'm under his law. 
But for some reason or another, we still just decide that it doesn't matter. We, so we say one thing and we live another way. So functionally, we're atheists. You see that? If we just say, well, I, you know, I believe all this, but it doesn't matter. We might not say it doesn't matter, but the, the fact that we just continue on as if it doesn't matter says something and speaks something louder. And ultimately, we make ourselves God. We make ourselves above the law. So they move, they settle, and finally they build. Turning east, away from God, creating their own law, and following their own will, they settle on that ground, so to speak, and, they, and it's followed by an action. They act. They do something. And what do they do? The Bible says they build a city and they build a tower. They build a city and they build a tower. Most cities in the ancient Near East were not intended to be lived in. So they're not building high-rises and apartments and things like that. This was a temple. Cities in the ancient Near East often, oftentimes were basically seats of government and places of worship to pagan gods. People didn't live there. They lived outside of it. Okay? So here they go, building this city and building this temple. <clears throat> and these ancient ar architects are doing the same. They determine to build a tower. And how does the Bible describe this tower? That reaches the heavens. We will build a tower that reaches the heavens. Now, what kind of temple are they building? A tower are they building? Well, it's, it's pretty um, well agreed that what they're building is a Mesopotamian ziggurat. Okay? Basically, like a, like, a, like a fancy kind of pyramid. The thing is massive. It's made of bricks, the Bible says. It's got some kind of like step structure so you can walk up it and there you can actually go online and google these there are still some amazing um, um, ancient um, ruins of ziggurats in existence to this day i think the biggest one they have is in iraq <clears throat> but here they are building this ziggurat a massive staircase like stru structure and the, these these structures sometimes were the city itself and there was nothing else so it's very likely that babel was just a temple a tower. It's called a city, but the city itself would have been the temple itself. The word tower in Hebrew, this is very telling. The word tower in Hebrew has a simple meaning. Now remember, they're outside of God. They've traveled east, and they're outside of his blessing and his definition of who they are. So they build a tower. And you know what the word in Hebrew means? To be great. It means to be great. So they built for themselves greatness. Hmm. And now, here we begin to see the motivation of these men and women. The motive behind their move. Let's look at the motive. The motivation behind their traveling and their settling and their building is described very clearly in Scripture. But you know that there are other ancient documents, Babylonian documents, that talk about this. One is called the Enuma Elish. Um, it's a creation epic. It's written um, in ancient Babylon. It's Mesopotamian, second, second millennium B.C. And it it remarks on this event. Isn't that remarkable? And it's a text acknowledging the building and creation of Babylon and the, the Tower of Babel. 
says this. Now, they credited, credited it to their pantheon of gods. They're building this. This was their pantheon of gods. So in the text, the lower gods are speaking to the kind of like a hero god. His name is Marduk, right? So these lower gods, they really love this guy. And they want to do something nice for him. Okay? And this is the text. Now, O Lord, thou who hast caused our deliverance, what shall be our homage to you? Let us build a shrine whose name shall be called Lo, a chamber for our nightly rest. Let us rest in it. Let us build a throne, a recess for this abode. And when Marduk heard this, his features brightly glowed. He's happy. Like the day. Like that of lofty Babylon, whose building you have requested. Let its brickwork be fashioned. You shall name it the sanctuary. This is Babylon, the place that is your home. Interesting. This is from the perspective of the builders, who's the, who the Bible says that their tongues were confused. This is their motivation in the building, in the structure of this. So Babel, to her builders and to her children, these were the stories that were told, Babel was the origin of life. Ba- Babel was the, the abode of the gods. This is where they got their life from. This is a very um, sacred place for them. And believe it or not, our text complements this thinking. It tells us that they settled and built for three reasons. Now, if you're without God, you have to do something about that. You can't live like that. So you've got to make another one. You've got to create another center. Your center's gone. So you have to create another center. And that's what they do. That center for them was Babel in a dedication to the gods that they had created. How do we know that these were gods to them? What motivated this, very simply, what was underneath this idolatry, it seems kind of bizarre to us because we don't worship statues and all these weird things, but they worshiped these statues for the same reason we worship anything today. And the first thing was security. They said, let us stay, let's build this temple, otherwise we'll be scattered all over the earth. What's implied here is that there'd be some kind of danger. They'd be in trouble. And that's logical, right? The, the, the world just got flooded. It's not a very safe place. They should stay, stick together. There's power in numbers, right? So here's their logic. Apparently, life apart from the group was a perceived threat to their survival. And friends, life outside of Eden, life outside of the creator who holds all things together, he's our safety. So if we leave him, where are we going to find it? Where are we going to find our safety, our security? Money, right? Power, people, anywhere. Somewhere, we just need to feel safe. Maybe it's love. Maybe it's a relationship. I need, some, I need someone to marry me. That's what I need. Then I'll feel safe. So we're, we all pine for this because we left God in Eden and now we have to build something else. We got we to gotta deal with the personal insecurities and fears that are left behind. Does that make sense? So here we are. Here, here these people are. They, they recognize the same existential problem, this fear internally that they have. So they say, let's stay and let's build because otherwise we'll be scattered all over the face. So we need to find a new center, a new safety, new gods. The community took God's place and they kept themselves safe outside of Eden. 
See? But it's not safe out there, friends, and we know it. Now, the other thing that they were after, their other motivation, number two, was meaning. Purpose, maybe is another word. So that we might make a name for ourselves. We need to make a name for ourselves. Our community's work, our intelligence, our, accompli- our accomplishments will show the world how great we are, that we matter, that we're important. Does that make sense? That we're not just dust or pebbles or sand or a little bug, that we're more than that, that we're people of significance. You see, they needed to fill that void. They lost it. They lost their significance in their relationship with God in Eden. They traveled east, so they needed to build something else that in their minds could replace it. So they erect a structure. They erect Babel. They needed to justify their existence, make a name for themselves to prove that they're not bums. You guys have said this before. I'm sorry. But you ever see Rocky? And Adrian's always giving him a hard time. Come on, just let the guy fight. Right? So don't do it. Why do you need to do it? And she's trying to talk him out of it again and again. She's trying to talk him out of it. And then finally he blurts out, I get to prove I'm not a bum. You remember that? I get to prove that I'm not a bum. So Rocky needed to prove himself, that he wasn't a bum, that he was important, that he mattered. He needed to justify his own existence. So he built, he erected a Tower of Babel in in the boxing ring. And friends, we all do the same. But when the center's gone, You need a new center. That's why we do this. God in Eden gave us purpose, gave us meaning, gave us satisfaction, justified our existence. But when we left him, when we went, when we moved east instead of west, we had to replace it with something else. You see? When the center is gone, you need a new center. And their significance for them was found in their, their numbers, their organization, and their architecture. They proved themselves as being great people. <clears throat> Sound familiar? <laughs> oh, friends, how many towers, how many babels do we, do we erect every single day? They're always new, too, aren't they? We erect one, we realize, oh, this isn't enough, this, isn't, this doesn't accomplish what I thought it would, let me build another one somewhere else. That's what we do. And finally, the last motivation, and probably the most important, is glory. This tower was to reach to the heavens. These people, like your pastor, wanted to be great. They wanted to be on top and looked at and esteemed. So they say, we will make a tower that will reach to the heavens. They wanted to be great outside of God, east of his presence, great in and of themselves. So their greatness wasn't because of their relationship or their origin in their creator. It was because they were great. Does that make sense? Great in and of themselves. And let me remind you about the first person to ever do this. The Bible says that he was an angel named Lucifer, who our culture popularly refers to as Satan. In Isaiah chapter 14, listen to this. Listen to this Tower of Babel. You said in your heart, I will ascend 
to heaven. I will reach the heavens. Well, why does he want to do this? I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly above God. Ooh, here it is. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Then you remember what Satan said to Adam and Eve? You will be like God. What did he mean? Above him. You don't need him. You can be above him. So in our hubris, we seek to not only be like God, but to be God himself. He's gone. The center's gone. So we need a new center. So we create it. And we sit on top of our babbles. All throughout scripture, even here, God is the one that's pictured as coming to us. He comes down to us. It's an act of grace. We cannot accomplish it by our intelligence or might. We need him to move. But what they're saying is they don't need this at all. They can go up themselves. We can work or engineer our way to him and be like him and replace him. They presumed they didn't need God to get to God. Did you hear that? Let me say that again. They presumed that they didn't need God to get to God. If he's off in the clouds, we can just come and find him. We will make a tower that reaches to the heavens. But friends, when God closes heaven's doors, when Eden's gates shut, when the temple veil is closed, it is not possible for ever any one of us to enter into his presence again. And if we ever do, it is a gift of God by grace to us because he's done it. There is no Babel. There is no tower tall enough. There is no work great enough. There is no love fabulous enough to justify us, to keep us safe, to prove our existence, or to give us any amount of glory, a real kind of glory. And here's the miracle. This is number three. The miracle. The history of humanity is just this. Settling down to reach the heavens, to prove ourselves. Without God, there's no center and there's no other choice but to create an alternate center. You see? When someone or something else besides God takes the seat, the only result is chaos, confusion, division, and violence. Friends, what I'm saying here is if you don't get your self-worth, if you don't prove your, the, the, your own significance and your own safety and all these things in God himself and what he's given to you in him, then, then your life will become quite chaotic internally. There will be chaos and internal division and anxiety and sorrow because you'll never find it. Do you know that in, in Akkadian... The word Babel, this, is, um, th- this would, would have been another language around the time of the writing of Genesis. In Akkadian, there was a, there was a, they had a word, Babel, too. And it meant gate of God. Babel was the gate of God. In other words, this is how we get to God, to greatness. But in Hebrew, it meant confusion. <laughs> so what, without God, seems to be the way to God only creates for us confusion 
and chaos. Isn't that true? We have all these gates to God that we think, here it is. And then we walk through and we realize that we just fell down Alice's hole. Right? Where am I? What is this? This didn't work at all. There's chaos, confusion, anger, strife, fighting, violence. The miracle, and perhaps irony, is that in spite of us doing this time and time again, God comes down. It's kind of an insult if you realize this. They're making this tower to heaven, and it says that God looks from heaven. He can barely see this thing. It's so puny that he has to come down to see what they're doing. So they didn't even get close, in other words. They're trying to make a tower to God. They didn't even get close. But there's a grace in this because God comes down. They don't reach him, but he comes down to see them. He comes down to their confusion. He comes down to their chaos, to their lostness. And friends, it might seem in this text that he, he does. He confused their languages and he scatters them to the ends of the earth. But even in this is a grace. Underneath that what seems to be a judgment is an amazing grace because he's not going to let them remain in Babel because Babel doesn't work. It doesn't reach to heaven. So he's not going to let us get joy and delight in things that don't work, that don't actually bring us to him. So there's the grace. There's the miracle. God has been gracious to us. And the same is true today. Every tower we erect only leads to confusion and disappointment. We never feel safe or significant or great. Our towers aren't high enough, and we know it. That pain, that insecurity, that drive for something greater, but never do we find it. That's God's gift. It's God's gift that we never find it because it's not there. It's a gift because that is what might finally awaken us to what will bring us to the thing that we've been looking for all along in him. And that's the miracle. That in Christ, now hear this, in Christ we get everything we've been looking for and have been denied our whole life. Safety, significance, and greatness. In Christ we get all those things. The assurance of life, our safety, the adoption of sons, our significance. We are royal offspring of our God in heaven. And, and the inheritance, all the possession that belongs to Christ now belongs to you and me in Christ. We get everything. Isn't that fantastic? Oh, and I was so sad 18 years ago when the love of my life broke my heart. I was, and it was real, and I was heartbroken. Oh, but there's something so much better. There's something so much grander and greater waiting for me that makes that seem like just like a puny little blessing. God is ready to give us himself and the whole entire world, and all we want sometimes is a little bit of money. Oh, how, how small is our perspective. How small it can be. That in Christ, he gives us the assurance of life, the adoption of sons, and the glory of Jesus. That I may glorify them, Jesus prayed in the Gospel of John, with the glory you have given me. God 
glorifying us, that seems backwards. But it's what the Bible says in John chapter 17. God gives us his glory. You know what glory is? I heard John Piper explain it once. Glory is like when you see a great musician and you just delight in his greatness. You don't understand it. You don't know why you like it. But you, it but, and you don't even know why he's good because you know nothing about music. But you know he's good. You know, this guy, eh. But when you go <laughs> to someone who's awesome, you, can't, you know you are in the presence of greatness. You know what else he said? He said there's something about glory that almost requires that we share it with someone else. Did you see that game last night? Right? Every one of us who watched Tom Brady come out of that deficit was talking about it the next day. It's almost like we're part of it. That's what evangelism is, friends. It's not like the sick need to like annoy people on their way to work. Right? It's because, it's because we're so amazed by God's grace for us that there's something about it that we have to share with people. He saved me. I was lost, now I'm found. I had little pieces of sand and now I have the whole world. You see, when our hearts start to delight in that, we start to speak of it. We tell of the good news of Jesus Christ. You want to be great? You want to be significant? You want to be important? Good. But you got to bring down Babel. And you got to head west. Like the city that nurtured my greed and my pride, I stretch my arms into the sky. I cry, Babel, Babel, look at me now. Then the walls of my town came crumbling down. Friends, sing, strum, stomp until it crumbles again. And as it settles, as the dust settles of all those Babels that we've built, there is going to stand a figure, the one that you've been waiting for, the greater tower, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.